All right, well, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 16. That's where we'll be continuing our discussion. When I was maybe in fourth grade, I remember that my grandpa had this deal with me where if I would go to his house and I would crush cans and save them in a bag that he'd put them in the back of his truck, we'd go recycle them and I can keep whatever we get for it. This is in California where they really are very easy to recycle. You can just throw it in a bag, they weigh it, and it's, you're good to go. So as a fourth grader, this is a stinking good deal. So I remember I get so excited about it. It was like the thing I looked forward to every time I go to my grandparents' house. So I'm crushing all these cans, put them in the bag. And I remember one time, I don't remember how many bags it was, but I remember I got at least $20. I just remember there's $20 bill, and I was stinking proud. Because when you're in fourth grade, that's an infinite there's infinite possibilities what you could do with 20 bucks. So I remember I was stoked about this $20 bill and I had it in my pocket and my grandpa's walking ahead of me and I just remember we were somewhere on the coast in California on the beach and as we're walking, there's a dude in front of us who he was sitting on the ground. He had a box in front of him and a sign and he had a cane that had a red tip to it and he had those dark glasses. And the sign said something along the lines of... Um, poor, hungry, and blind, you know, give whatever you can. And he was doing the thing where he's looking away, there's no one there, and his hand is searching. And I just remember as a fourth grader, I was like, or around that age, I was like, man, okay, God is wanting me to give this dude 20 bucks, like, because if, oh man, and I just remember thinking, okay, don't let your right hand know what your left hand does, so I won't let grandpa see, and this will be awesome. And so I walk up, I pull the $20 out all sly. I let grandpa get a little ahead of me and I just drop it in his box. I'm walking past. And then I always remember what happened next because it ruined the whole rest of my day. I heard the blind man say, oh, wow, $20. (laughs) And then I had to explain to grandpa why I don't have $20 anymore. And the store we just walked to is, is a pointless trip. But have you ever made an investment or have you ever spent time or have you ever done something thinking that it would pan out one way and you got pretty burned or something bad happened, it didn't pan out the way you wanted? Well, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is going to be talking about all that God has entrusted to us, all that he's given us, and whether or not we're faithful with it. So the first half of Luke chapter 16 is Jesus talking to the disciples And the point that Jesus is making is there's a really good use, a really good investment for all that God has entrusted to you. And the second half is there's a really spiritually deadly way to misuse all that God has entrusted to us. So as we jump into Luke chapter 16, I'm going to preface, there's a parable on both ends. This first parable can be really easy to get lost in, and you can spend a lot of time in this first parable. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through it, and we're going to talk about it, but we're going to move quickly to the point that Jesus is trying to make with his disciples. So let's jump in. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. 
This idea of manager isn't like um, he's just in charge of getting employees in the right place at the right time. It's not making sure that the shelves are stocked. This idea of manager, you should more think like it's the COO position and the CFO position merged in one. The idea is the master has given complete control to this manager of all of his assets, all of everything he owns, including his finances, and this manager has the freedom to invest all that the master owns in whatever way benefits the master the most, whatever's in the master's best interest. And it's clear that he's not doing that, that he's mismanaging things. He's labeled as dishonest. And so the master comes and says, hey, I've heard some bad reports. I want you to get together a list of all that you've claimed to have done, and you're going to be audited. And we're going to do this audit, and we're going to see whether or not you still have a job here. And as we continue, we see, verse chapter 3, And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? He knows he hasn't been doing a good job. He knows he's been dishonest. This isn't a surprise. I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. So he sees only two outcomes. He's either going to dig or beg. And this probably indicates that he's been unfaithful everywhere in life. He doesn't have any family members or people that he can reasonably expect to fall back on who will take care of him. Verse chapter 4. So he comes with a plan. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So it's like this. For some of us, it's harder to imagine than others. Imagine you are $100,000 in debt, right? And it's at 26% interest, and it's just crushing. And you're like, this is so, what are we going to do? How are we going to make this work? And one day, Amex or Wells Fargo or Citibank or whoever you use, they call you. And they say, hey, we've, I've looked over your situation personally. I've taken a special interest in your case. And I've decided that I'm going to take 50% of your debt off. You'd say, that's a miracle. Like, that's water into wine miracle right there. Oh my goodness. And he goes, yeah. And man, this is just you and me. I'm going to change this. And you just, you forget about on your end. By the way, my name is Kevin and I'm going to be looking for a job. So if you hear of anything, Kevin's getting a call back. Like, oh my goodness, Kevin just made this work for me. Okay, I'm going to get this guy. But it happens not to just one dude or two dudes. The Bible says one by one. So he summoned all the master's debtors and did this with them. And then Jesus continues and says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Jesus is not commending the dishonest manager for his dishonesty. What Jesus is noting is he's saying, this guy figured out something really, really important. He came up with a plan and he realized Okay, I'm going to have to prepare my documents. I'm going to be audited. I'm probably not going to keep my job. So I can either continue this line that I'm heading down. I can receive my last month's paycheck, and I can pocket it, and I can try to spread that out as far as it'll go. But 
in about maybe six months and maybe a year, maybe just by the end of this month, things are going to be really, really tough. So I got to figure something out. And he decided that a few extra dollars in his pocket weren't as important as investing in people. He realized that if he can use instead what he has, the resources that he has, invest it into people, that's going to last. That's going to stretch much further than just pocketing away a few extra dollars. And so Jesus, in verse 9, ends this section of the parable with, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So that's the story. The point that Jesus is trying to make is that our God is the manager. Or sorry, that's not true. He's the master. Our God is the master and he has entrusted to each one of us as managers everything that we have. And it's not just your wealth, but also your assets. It's also your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your very health. And a good case that um, the Bible makes for this is from David. So David, at the end of his life, in First Chronicles 29, he's addressing his people. He gets them all together, and he's going to make a prayer to the Lord in front of everyone. And this is what he says. First Chronicles 29, verse 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. David had plenty of riches and honor. And you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand It is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And this was interesting. And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given. So David, someone who has lived a life where he's got status, he's got fame, he's recognized, he's succeeded in so many areas of life. He's got plenty of riches. His son is about to be king. He recognizes everything belongs to God, including his own strength. Everything that he, you could say, worked for, he attributes that, well, no, that actually belongs to God, which can be kind of hard for us as Americans. Because like, when you look at the Bible and you look at some, like, okay, the tithe, and you say, God wants 10% of my money. Oh my goodness, like what in the world? Jesus is saying, yeah, your perspective of God and your perspective of how the world works is actually kind of backwards. So like my dad is the hardest working human being I have ever met in my life. And he would say, he could easily say, yeah, I got to where I'm at because I worked my fingers to the bone. It's my integrity. It's my ingenuity, my intellect. It's my strength, my character. It's my work ethic. It's the, the way I push myself, which is all awesome. But I went to Kenya last year and I saw plenty of men, hundreds of men who like if they were the same person, had the same intellect, the same ingenuity, the same level of character, they were hardworking guys. They are hardworking guys. These, these men wake up before their kids wake up. They go work all day and they get back ju- with just enough resources to give their kids food for that very next morning. It, it's not 
that it's your work ethic or it's how you've done that has provided what you have. It's really, that's circumstantial. That's just because you live in America where you have the resource, you have this opportunity. And if you were born in another place in another time, you wouldn't have it, even if you had all the same stuff. So what David and what Jesus is saying is our perception can be off. We can look at things and go, well, I have earned this. David could look at his life and go, I have earned my status. I have earned my place. I'm a man of war. I had mighty men. But instead, David goes, no, God's given it to me. And God has been so generous to me. This, gives, this paints the picture of God as something completely different, as someone who wants to take from you. He's a master who comes to you and says, I want to give you all these gifts, all these talents, all these abilities. I want to give you your work ethic. I want to give you everything that you own. And whatever increase comes from that, from my investment, I only want 10% of my investment back and you get to live off the 90. Well, all of a sudden, your perception of God really changes, doesn't it? All of a sudden, he's not stealing from you. All of a sudden, he's incredibly generous with you. And instead, the the picture it paints of us can be dishonest when we end up being miserly or stingy or, well, I'm not going to spend time with that person. I'm not going to invest in that person. It ends up where we are put in the position where we're robbing God, where we end up, it's not just being miserly. It's not just being stingy. It's actually thievery. That's at least how Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 318 would put it, is that when we withhold all that God has entrusted with us, it's actually robbing God. And so in this parable, Jesus is showing us, okay, you have this dishonest manager and he realized even as a dishonest worldly man that it's not a few extra dollars in my pocket that matters. It's personal individual investment. And Jesus talking to his disciples say, how come the sons of this world know this about their own generation, but the sons of light act like they don't know how their world works. Like we're from a different kingdom. Like what I think is so funny is my daughter, she likes rocks and I don't know why. And so she'll go out and she'll pick up rocks and she'll bring them inside and she'll be so stoked about her rock collection. And my wife and I have a deal. Go, you can choose one. All the rest have to leave, but you can choose one. Well, the Bible paints this picture in Revelation of this kingdom of God that the roads are paved with gold and children will bring them in and we'll go, you can choose one nugget and that's it. I want the rest outside. Because we recognize that God is the provider of everything, that the world, the kingdom of God is completely upside down from us. We can spend our entire lives trying to gain fame or status or money or stuff. And God is telling us your kingdom, you're from the children of light. You're of the kingdom of light. And that's not how you're to be. You're to be people who invest in people. And Jesus continues this thought in the next verse. Verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus then is, he's talking about faithfulness. If you're faithful, if you're not faithful in little things, you aren't going to be faithful in big things, which as 
as people, we can kind of want to define our lives and define how things are doing by the really big things in life. But the truth of it is, is life isn't made up of these really big defining moments. Life is actually more accurately defined by all the tiny things and the tiny choices you make. And the way that I like it illustrated the best is it's the nickel and dimes of life. How many of you, oh, you don't have to raise your hand because I'm one of them, nickel and dime all your money away. And it can happen really quick because you'll be like, man, I just got paid. Josh has put both his hands up in the back. <laughs> you're like, oh, I just got paid. Yes, man, I'm going to grab me and my wife a Dutch bros. And then you're like, well, I'll grab someone else one. And then every day, all of a sudden you're like, where did all my money go? Because we sometimes forget to maybe budget for those little things. You don't think about them, man. Oh, it's just $3 here. It's just a nickel here. It's just a dime here. Well, Jesus is telling us that's what's defining your life. It's the nickel and dime moments. It's the things that you can kind of overlook. When we're faithful in those little things, it's going to prove us to be faithful in bigger things. Some little nickel and dime moments that you don't even think about but have huge impact could be like, a little note of encouragement to a coworker or to your spouse or to a kid. I was talking with Terry and it's going to an old folks home and just spending time with people and no one's spending time with them and investing some time. Their kids aren't spending time with them, but just investing some time with them and sharing the gospel with them. It could be teaching a Sunday school class. It could be giving a glass of water to a kid. It can be teaching a Sunday school class. <laughs> But it's these little nickel and dime moments that don't take too much from you that really mean a lot. Let me show you how this can pay off. This, it, it's like, I just love it. So we have a volunteer who's super faithful. She's decided that she's going to be an every week person because she thinks that the personal investment in these kids is so important. And so she'll wait for them and she already knows their names because she's been here for a long time and she'll go, oh my goodness, Odin, I'm so happy to see you. Oh, now that you're here, we can start. And the kids that she says this to, they're like, yeah. And like, they're so excited to be here. Well, one day this volunteer was in Winco and it was packed and it was just craziness. And as she's walking through this, one of these kids sees her and she points at this volunteer and goes mom and there's, there's a bunch of things you could think this kid's gonna say like that's my Sunday school teacher oh that's that's the person from church but in the middle of Winco points and says mom that's my friend and this volunteer goes yeah, I am. And it's just like brought her to tears because it's like, yeah. And Jesus in verse chapter nine says, I tell you, make friends by means of unrighteous wealth, by un any means necessary, because when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. When you are investing your life into people and you can share with someone the gospel, even if it's having coffee with someone who's going through a hard time and you can just show them the love of Christ and you can introduce them to Jesus that's an investment that you're making that when you get to heaven, you're going to have, hey, that's my friend. And that's what matters. You're going to get that experience. You know, we'll move on. I can go on forever. I have to get through this chapter. I really like this story. And I'll talk about kids all night if you give me the opportunity. So we'll see how much time we have. Then we'll talk about children. So verse chapter 14, right here the audience changes. So Jesus had been talking about the disciples. There's a very good way to use all that God has entrusted to you. There's a really healthy way, not just for you, but for everyone else, for the kingdom of God to use all that he's entrusted to you. And now Jesus turns to the Pharisees and shows us there's a really spiritually deadly attitude to have towards all that God has entrusted to us. 
So verse chapter 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, the root of all evil, love money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. These Pharisees are those who they believed that their accumulation of wealth showed God's favor upon their life. Jesus shows in the rest of this chapter that having material possessions, having wealth, having stuff is not by any means an indicator of God's favor upon your life at all. And so in Jesus in verse 16 says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So Jesus is continuing this idea of faithfulness. That he's looking at the Pharisees where they have done the religious thing, right? They would, when people are looking at them, they would give so others would think they were great. They would dress really well and nice because that shows God's favor upon my life. They were accumulating for themselves to increase their own standard. And Jesus is saying, you have the whole thing wrong. You've got everything backwards. And if you think that just by following the rules, doing this obligation, it's that idea of, oh, I got to give God 10%. That's not interesting to God. Instead, Jesus, he raises the bar. Jesus is like, okay, Old Testament believers and New Testament believers, who's been given more revelation? Who's been given more understanding? Who's been given more from God, even by giving Jesus his own son? So the standards then for New Testament believers are insurmountably higher. It's not just giving so that people think you're a giver. It's giving from your heart generously because God is generous. It's not being faithful in just these things. It's being faithful in even the stuff that can be hard to be faithful in, like in your marriage and with your kids and being faithful to just loving your spouse and being a good listener. It's, I think that's why it's thrown in there. It seems out of place at first. My first thing was to joke about if your wife leaves you, she'll take half your money. Like this verse chapter is about money, but no, it's about faithfulness. It's God's call to faithfulness to all that God has entrusted to our care. And that includes our spouse. The, the, the level, the expectations that we have as New Testament believers is so much higher than the standard set for Old Testament believers, and it's done in grace. And then Jesus goes into this last parable, which further illustrates that having wealth, having money, having stuff is not an indicator that God's, it's not an indicator of God's favor. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish of this flame. 
But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So Jesus gives these two characters in these two situations that are incredibly contrasted from another. You have this rich man who's dressed in purple. And like a lot of you know, if you had purple, it was a very costly dye. The only people, it was a kingly cover color because the only way you could afford it is if you had so much in excess that it was reasonable that then you could dress with purple. Well, this is one of those guys. He dresses in purple. He's got fine clothes. That's the rich man. Lazarus, on the other hand, is covered in sores. We can anticipate that the rich man probably has gotten to where he's at because of his ability to do things. Maybe his ability to negotiate, his um, physical strength, his ability to motivate. I don't know. But Lazarus, we're told, is laying at his gate. The only people that you would lay at a gate is someone who can't get there himself. So Lazarus is covered in sores and he's probably crippled in some way. He's disfigured. And it tells us that this man has feasts. So he's probably got people there all the time. He's got friends. Lazarus has got nobody and nothing. And he begs at the gate, hoping that someone who's taking the trash out, the bag might rip and he would get some food to eat. This rich man is someone that everyone in the community, all of his friends and family would go, wow, God has shown his favor so greatly on you. He would be recognized. He'd be esteemed. He'd be someone who'd go, man, I hope my kids grow up to be like that guy. I really want all that for my kids, that success, that fortune, that favor God has on him. And as they passed Lazarus, they would look at him and go, wow, that God hates that guy. Kind of like Job, where his friends and family come together and they go, you know what? It would probably be better if you just cursed God and died because he's obviously got no good plans for you. They look at him and you go, wow, this is no good. Kind of like the people did with Jesus. They go, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus is like, that's not it. But Lazarus, the Bible tells us, he, when he dies, the angels carry him away. The rich man, when he dies, he's buried. The rich man is honored even in death. There's probably people around talking about him, probably sharing all that he's done, all of his accomplishments. Oh man, he's such a person that we can look up to and try to aspire to be. Lazarus, the angels carry off because his body was probably discarded. They was probably laying there and they found out he was dead and they throw him in a ditch. He was not important. He's not someone to be remembered. He's not someone to think about. But interestingly, we get his name because Jesus, God is saying he does remember his name. This rich man, We don't get to know his name, that he's not someone that God would, well, God would know his name, but that we would get to know his name and remember him and talk about him. He's just this guy. And the gate, the thing that separated Lazarus and this rich man, that at any point, this rich man could have eased Lazarus' suffering, could have brought him some clothing, could have brought him some, anything. That gate is now fixed. I don't think this is a picture of the actual afterlife. I think it's a really, afterlife, I think it's a really good illustration though because we have people in our lives in around us who are so close. The idea that's being painted here is he's at, Lazarus is laying at the base of this guy's driveway and he purposefully would have to ignore this man every day. It's like you would purposely have to take care to make sure that you don't touch this guy, you don't get unclean from it. 
And there's people like that in our life every single day. There's people that God brings into our lives that we're called to be faithful to, that we're called to invest in. But Jesus is showing that in this illustration that eventually that gate which can swing eventually gets fixed and that your choices are set. And so this rich man, he crawls out, he cries out for help. Abraham, father, calls him father because he knows the Old Testament. If you were a Jewish person, you would be really familiar with the Torah, all that was expected of you, the way that God wants people to treat the poor, the people that God wants to treat the marginalized and the outcast. And he says, Abraham, father, send Lazarus. And Lazarus says, no. But rich men don't take no for an answer. And so verse 27, and he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. His argument is, well, it's unfair. I wasn't given enough information. I didn't know that you need to send someone to go tell my dad and to my brothers because clearly I wasn't given the right information. It's not fair. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be they convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I, I wonder, like, when Luke is penning this, if maybe he had some disciples near him as input, and they go, and then Jesus said this. And being on the other side of the cross writing Luke, they go, and someone should rise from the dead, if they got chills, they're like, ooh. Because they know. But this whole chapter, this whole idea is that Jesus had called us to being faithful in every aspect of our life. He's called us to be incredibly generous with all that he's given us, to change our perspective of something that it's all because of what I've done. The Pharisees had this idea, it's all because of what I've done. The rich man, it's all his stuff. Why should he have to share it with someone else? And Jesus instead is saying, look at every aspect of your life and think, I can't believe God has entrusted this to me. It'll cause you to be so much more generous. It'll cause you to be so much more grateful. Constantly living your life in this state of thankfulness going, God, these kids you've entrusted to me are a handful. Thank you so much that I can learn how to be a better parent because you've entrusted them to my care. But the, the whole attitude, your whole perspective, it changes. And for us as believers, we're supposed to constantly be in remembrance. As, thus, as us who have on, on this side of the cross, who know Jesus, we're supposed to be constantly in the state because it's the example that has been given to us. Our God, everything in heaven and on earth belongs to him. All glory, all majesty, all the victory, all strength, everything is his. He doesn't need anything. But our God, Philippians 2, didn't see equality with God as being something to be grasped, but he humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we are to keep in remembrance that our God who didn't need us, who doesn't need our praise or doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our service. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need anything from you. But our God would come and be born as a man to be poor. He was really poor. His family had terrible reputation. Like I was reading the Bible story to my daughter and um, Joseph and Mary are going to where Joseph's family came from in Bethlehem. 
And Joseph's family's not there, either because they didn't want him around because he just dishonored the family name. That's probably what happened. That they were like, no, nah, you don't have a place here. Figure it out. And they had to go stay in a barn, at a cave. Like, I was teaching my, I was reading my daughter. I'm like, that's probably what happened. Those dogs. But that's what happened. Our God humbled himself. And then in Luke chapter I think it's three or two. He humbles himself. It's three. He humbles himself to his mom. He's obedient to his earthly mother. And then our God lives poor and hungry as a teaching rabbi. He gives every, we're supposed to be generous and giving because our God already gave everything for you and me. We're constantly supposed to be in view of the cross that Jesus didn't hold back. He didn't just give 10%. Jesus gave everything. Jesus didn't withhold anything from us. And so when we're in view of that, when we're in view of the generosity and the goodness and the greatness of our God, it should spur us not out of obligation, but out of, oh my goodness, my God has been so good to me. My God has been so faithful to me. My God will never leave me or forsake me. And now I have this opportunity to go and sign up for the kids wing and invest in kids and teach them about Jesus and... But that's really it, isn't it? It's that it's no matter where God has called you, no matter who he brings into your life to invest in and to be faithful to, the Bible says that what we've done to the least of these, we do to him. That what we do to those who can be forgotten, we do to him. That how we treat people in the parking lot, on the road, in our house, in our care, in our workplace, whatever we do to the least, those who are marginalized, outcasts, aren't thought of lonely, we do to him. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty certain that when you enter God's kingdom, you want to be someone where Jesus sees you and goes, that's my friend. That's what we want. So guys, this week, let's be people like the disciples who are faithful in every aspect of our life. We look at every person, every opportunity as, God, you've been so generous to me. How can I be faithful in the little things, the nickel and dime things today? Don't let me be a dishonest manager. So let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful for your goodness. I'm so thankful that you have chosen even me to speak to children, to speak to people, to to talk even though I'm broken. And I'm so thankful that today we all in our brokenness and in our weakness get to see yourself being made strong. That Jesus, you go before us and God, I pray that we would not be dishonest, dishonest managers, that we would take all that you have given us, that we would look over our life and see all the things that you've called us to be faithful to and we would be faithful to them. That you would look at us and you'd say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest at the end of our lives. That we would not view ourselves as greater than those, but we would view everyone as an opportunity to get to share your love. They're the nickel and dime moments. Help us to be those who are so kind and generous because you are kind and generous to us first. It's your kindness that has led us to repentance. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.